Sincerely, folks, thank you for being here with us this morning. You have done Phil and I just such an honour just by, by coming along and being here with us to, to have this conversation about life and faith and the things that we love and the things that we're passionate about and, and, and what, what that means from a kingdom perspective and whether your interests and passions and hobbies are like Phil and I in the world of board gaming or you're a footballer or a rugby player or a hockey player or you love craft or, or whatever your particular interests are, we really, really hope that God has something to say to every single one of us here this morning. Let me tell you a little bit more about Phil and I as kind of a a double act by way of introduction. Phil and I met whenever we were at university together 12, 13 years ago, and we spent many a late night, early morning, chatting together, praying together, reading together, and and, and asking the big and pertinent questions of life and faith. And it's just a a pleasure and a privilege for me to continue to be doing that, even still 12, 13 years later, and to to ask some of those questions um, with you fine folks this morning. One of the things that Phil and I quickly bonded over whenever we we met one another for the first time at university was the fact that our experience as kids and as young people was that we kind of identified ourselves as the outsiders. And by outsiders, what I mean was whenever I looked at, at my peers, the folks that were around me, I didn't see an awful lot of people who were interested in the same kind of things that I was interested in. Uh... I remember really vividly at primary school completely faking an interest in football just because that was what the guys in my class loved and the other lads in my primary school class loved. And so I literally pretended to like football even though I honestly could not have cared less about it at that stage or I must confess even now today. I wasn't interested in some of those mainstream things and I think whenever I think back there were a couple of points in my life that sort of nudged me away from some of those more mainstream things and onto maybe something that we would regard as more on the fringes. The first thing was this, I remember as a young person visiting Ballymena Library uh, at the time, Ballymena had a library had a section of, of VHS videos, um, videotape cassettes, and one of the things they had on VHS was the Star Wars trilogy on VHS. And I borrowed this from Ballymena Library, and I loved it, and that was me hooked on space. My head was in the stars. I was a total space cadet as a kid. Just anything that had to do with spaceships and laser battles and all that kind of stuff, I was completely taken by it and captivated. The second thing that I remember happening was I read The Hobbit by Tolkien, and The Hobbit gave way to Lord of the Rings, and The Lord of the Rings gave way to Narnia, and Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea, and all those kind of fantastical fantasy novels, and again, I was just totally hooked. I was captivated by these like mythological, fictitious, but wonderful worlds. And for years, even getting into my teens, I wouldn't have read a book unless there were swords and dragons in it. That, that was all that I wanted to engage with and read about and be a part of. I just loved that stuff. But when I looked at the people around me, there weren't that many folks who seemed to like that same kind of stuff. And as I was reflecting on this, preparing for the seminar this morning, I was thinking, gosh, I'm being a bit unfair when I say that. Because actually, as a kid, my world was really small. My world was probably the, the 30 or so people that I went to school with. And I mean, my, my church growing up had a pretty small youth group. So there really weren't that many other folks my age that I ever spent that much time engaging with. So whenever I said that, that the people around me didn't like the same things that I liked, it was a pretty small sample size. I was saying that 30 people around me didn't like the same stuff that I liked. But as I got older and and my circles broadened and I ended up in new places and I headed off to university and I met folks like Phil, all of a sudden I found folks out there who were interested in the same stuff that I was interested in. And this was class. Other people like the things that I like. 
And in our we uh, we subtitle for our seminar this morning, we've, we've referred to this as our subcultures. Subcultures being gr- groups of people that are united around some aspect of culture, something that brings people together. And in the context of our we seminar this morning, we're thinking that in particular about the, the subcultures that we find ourselves a part of through our hobbies and interests and passions. For me, uh, as I say, I love fantasy, I loved space. I started to get uh, into comic books. I would read comic books and, and I would watch movies and I would love all that kind of stuff. And then I started to play board games and I, and I fell in love with those. And, and uh, the funny Phil mentioned the other day, he was saying there's a wee blurb in Phil's profile that says he loves tabletop games. And someone asked him what tabletop games meant. And I think, honestly, just just exists as a distinction these days between computer games and tabletop games. The things that we do in the virtual world and the things that we do in the physical world, something that you put on a table that you play with your mates around you. But whether it was video games or tabletop games or any of that kind of stuff, I loved it too. I loved it. And all of a sudden I was finding other people who also loved it. A subculture out there that was passionate about the same stuff that I was. A couple of years ago, so back 2017, Phil and I headed over to Birmingham uh, uh, the first weekend of June 2017, and we headed over to Birmingham to go to the UK Board Games Convention. Now, there are some folks out there that are probably thinking, I can think of nothing worse to do than go and spend a weekend at a board games convention. Other folks are just baffled and don't know what to picture right now. But honestly, it's kind of a big deal. Right, the UK Board Games Convention is the third biggest convention of its kind in the world. I'm just excited about it. Talking about it, it's great. 40,000 people gathered together in Birmingham for all over the world. We had people from the USA, from Germany, from across Europe who came together with 40,000 other people to talk about board games, to play board games, to buy board games, and to meet other people who liked the same things that they liked. We're standing in in a subculture of 40,000 people who just liked the same stuff that we did. And two years ago, Phil and I are standing in the hall, one of the NEC going, like, what is this? What the flip is going on? We're here amongst 40,000 other board gamers. Is this just for us? Is this just a wee jolly for Phil and James over to Birmingham to play board games? Or is there something significant to this? Is there actually a, like a kingdom significance to the reality that there are two disciples standing in this 40,000 strong subculture, representative of all faiths and none, with two disciples standing in the middle, who have a really, really natural and easy connection with every single person that we're going to meet this weekend, because we all love the same stuff. That's essentially the question that we want to continue to ask and keep asking because as, as we've reflected on it in the year since we, we sort of figure that there's not that many folks who are talking about this kind of stuff and so we want to have that conversation this morning and start to talk about those things that we're passionate about we're interested in. For us that's board games it won't be for you but that's okay because we're just talking about those things that excite us, that we're passionate about and that we love and how we can start to see those things from a kingdom perspective. When Phil and I met early on to, to, to plan this, um, gosh, three or four months ago, one of the first things that we wrote down that really struck both of us, a really well-known quote from Abraham Kuyper. You'll probably have come across it before, but let me read it up for you. And I'll hopefully put it on the screen. There we go. Abraham Kuyper says this. He says, There's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There's not one square inch of our human existence over which Christ does not cry mine. So that has to include the things that we love, that we're passionate about, the things that we're excited about, the things that we find to be our hobbies. 
And so we're going to think about that this morning. And we've divided our seminar into two parts for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it divides quite naturally into two. But also Phil and I are going to kind of tag team this so you don't have to listen to one voice the whole time. But we're going to start by thinking about the idea of redeeming our hobbies. Redeeming our hobbies. We're going to, we're going to chat about how our interests and our passions are brought under the Lordship of Christ. And how we can start to see God in those hobbies that we're interested in. And then in the second part of our seminar, we're going to think then about those hobbies and interests, but through missional eyes. And start to think about how disciples in those places carry an imperative to reach subcultures, to carry the truth of the gospel into the lives of the people that will meet in those spaces who already have such a real and natural and easy connection with. So we're going to start by thinking about redeeming our hobbies, and then we're going to think about reaching our subcultures. I hope that sounds good. I hope that sounds like what you hope you've signed up for this morning. I'm going to hand over to Phil, who's going to kick us off with our first wee section. Thanks, Jim. Do you have the clicker? Excellent. Thank you. So yeah, uh, as Jim said, this, this is the question that was burning in our minds. It's if, if there is not one square inch over all of creation, over all of our lives, over which Christ does not cry mine, what does that mean whenever we, we come to consider our hobbies and our interests? So I've tentatively called this section, Redeeming Our Hobbies, a theology. Um, essentially, we're asking, what is the theology behind being a football fan or being a fan of board games or being a fan of collecting coins, whatever it is we do? What is the theology behind it? Should we as Christians even have hobbies and pastimes outside of our work, our family, our church connections? What does it mean for our hobbies for Christ to be Lord over every aspect of our lives? Now, hobbies are not something that is explicitly talked about in Scripture. We have looked through, we have uh, examined all sorts of different characters in the Bible, and actually we find that Throughout Scripture, we don't find people enjoying hobbies as we understand them. Uh, And partly that's because our concept of leisure time is actually fairly a modern one. The Bible was written in in a different era, a different time. However, there's still examples that we can look at that give some anecdotal evidence. So if we look at, for example, at King David. King David, one of the things that everybody knows about him is he loved music. He loved to compose music. He loved to play music. However, when David does that, we know that generally he's doing that either to try and calm down King Saul, who's in a a rage, or he's doing it as praise and worship to God. We could look at Peter. Peter and his friends were keen fishermen, but that was their profession. That wasn't really their pastime. Uh, When Paul's writing to the Colossians, he makes passing reference at one point to uh, what we do whenever we prepare to run a race. Uh, which is somewhat anecdotal evidence for the fact that people there were familiar with the concept of getting together to run competitively in an amateur fashion. But it's anecdotal evidence at best. There's no character we can find in the Bible who's described as doing something for recreational enjoyment. And so it kind of seems like we're falling at the first hurdle. So that's our seminar. Thanks very much for coming. (laughs) No, of course not. we're not stopping there because we understand that our hobbies are a good thing. Um, Jim and I, we we have a love of board games and both of us would say when we gather friends together, say on a Saturday night, a couple of friends come around and we spend a few hours chatting together, enjoying one another's company, catching up on life, laughing as, as we play games together. Those sorts of things are good 
for our minds, for our bodies, for, for our souls, for our refreshment. And so I can't be convinced that our hobbies, when used appropriately, are not of God. Because, click, click, hooray, James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift comes from God. Now, obviously, it's not sufficient for me to say that something is good simply because I don't think it's bad. Um, So what is the actual theology of hobbies? And there's three points I want to look at quickly. Rest and refreshing, community, and enthusiasm and passion. So starting with the whole area of rest and refreshment, if we go right the way back to the beginning of the creation account in Genesis. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished this work of creation, so he rested from all his work. God rested from the work of creation, and in doing so, God established the principle of rest for all people for all time. Now, regardless of your view on the Lord's day, this point is pretty much indisputable. God set a pattern in the created order of work for six days and then establishing a day of rest on the seventh, in which we honor and praise God. And broadly speaking, the general consensus of all of human culture has matched this, that generally we work for five or six days and we rest for one or two. Now, God is not a finite being, and so God's rest from, uh, from the end of creation doesn't mean that he stopped governing the universe. We're told in Psalm 121, the one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. God doesn't need rest, but we do. We, we can't claim this affinity with God. We are finite beings. We are we're finite creations who require rest from our work. And God knows this. God knows full well our weakness. Again, from Psalm 103, the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are, and he remembers that we are only dust. We can't work flat out all the time. We need rest. We need downtime. We need activities apart from the ones that dominate our lives. And hobbies can provide an important means through which we find this rest and refreshment. Not through a complete cessation of activity, but from the engagement in an activity that we find particularly enjoyable. So in this way, Actually, hobbies are a real means of rest for us. They're a means of relaxation and refreshment. They help us to live better in the rest of life. So rest and refreshment. Next, we look at community. So again, we'll go back to the the account of creation in Genesis. God said in the beginning, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of heaven from the waters of earth. And let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. And that's what happened. And God saw that it was good. And this is the pattern we see all throughout the creation account. God said, and then it happens. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. So question, interaction time. Does anybody know the very first thing in the entire creation account that is listed as not being good? 
Any ideas? I'll tell you. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The entire account of creation has been God said, and it happened, and God saw that it was good. And yet when God creates man, he looks at him and says, it is not good for man to be alone. And that's the journey from, from good to not good. God speaks creation, cosmos, into existence, and he sees that it's good, and then he sees it's not good for man to be alone. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Why is a lack of community the very first thing in all of Scripture that is recorded as not being good? And it's because when mankind is created, God says, let us make man in our own image to be like us. Now, one of the most famous expressions of Christian doctrine, the Nicene Creed from around A.D. 325, begins with an exploration of the Trinity. And if you're not familiar with the Nicene Creed, you're probably familiar with the contents of it. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. God himself is community perfected. One God in three persons. Before there was anything else, before there was mankind or any sort of human community, there was God dwelling within himself in loving, perfect harmony in his threefold being. And then God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. That's why we have an innate longing for community, for company, for fellowship with one another. That's why it dwells so deeply and so primally within us. Because we are made in the image of a God who is perfect in community. It's how we're made as God's image bearers. And hobbies give us avenues to be able to meet this need for community, regardless of what your hobby is. Even if it's something that's generally seen as a solo activity, you can still find others who share that passion and interest. There's a documentary on Netflix. If, if, anybody, if any of you have access to Netflix, there's a documentary on there at the minute called Behind the Curve. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a fascinating documentary about the community of flat earthers. People who are joined together by the common belief that the earth is flat. Now, I'm not up here to endorse that point of view in any way. But there's fascinating observations within the documentary about the power of our innate need for community. One of the guys at one point says, all of us want to connect to people around things that make us unique. All of us want to connect to people around things that make us unique. At one point, there's a guy who basically acknowledges, I know this is all rubbish, but I've got my flat earth mates. We go down to the pub and have flat earth pints. And we don't actually talk about flat earth stuff all that much. We talk about what's going on. How's it going, Bob? Did you get that problem sorted in work? This guy has recognized his need for community. And so even in this more fringe group, we can see how hobbies and interests have the power to satisfy our need and our longing for community and company. 
So rest and refreshment, community. And then thirdly, enthusiasm and passion. And I want to pick up kind of where we just left off, being made in the image of God, in the image of our creator God, the God who spoke the world into existence, the one who flung the stars into space, whose very act of creation brought us into being. We're made in his image. And being made in the image of a creator God means that we are creative people. Within each one of us is the desire to create, to strive, to build, to compete. And all of this is because we are made by a God who creates, who builds, who inspires. Now we can look uh, in scripture for examples of how God very directly by his spirit gives the gift of creativity. One example is in Exodus 31. He says, see, I have chosen Bezaliel. I should have learned how to pronounce that first. Son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, knowledge and all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. God, by his spirit, gives gifts of creativity and passion for building to people in the Old Testament to fulfill a purpose. Now, often this is used as their profession, as the the thing that they do day in, day out. But that doesn't take away the joy they find in exercising these gifts of creativity that God has given. A quote from Eric Liddell. Uh, If you've heard of the film Chariots of Fire, that film was about this guy. This guy is a, a Christian uh, who who's excels uh, at running. And he, he seeks to bring that under the control of Christ. And Eric Liddell said, I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Likewise, George Frederick Handel, composer of the, the fantastical musical suite, The Messiah, writes about when he was writing the Hallelujah Chorus, that most famous piece of music, he said, I did think I saw heaven open and I saw the very face of God. These are just two examples of guys who are using the things that they have an interest in and a passion for and trying to bring that under the Lordship of Christ and finding that they find God's good pleasure when they do so. One final example A guy called Jeff Robinson, who works for the Gospel Coalition, said the following. My main hobby is following Major League Baseball and reading about its history. And it's a game I particularly enjoy with my two sons. I coach their teams and we often watch games on TV and take in several at ballparks across the country each summer. Baseball is played outdoors under God's blue sky and on lush green grass that he made. In our family's travels, we often visit old historic ballparks where famous teams or players once played. It's an excellent way to spend time with my boys and teach them lessons about history, sportsmanship, and even biblical manhood. We pray before their games that they will play the game, win or lose, to the glory of God. And sometimes we're privileged to have gospel conversations with teammates. We view the game and the pleasure our family takes in it as a good gift from God's hand. These are gifts to be enjoyed within the context of worshipping a good God who demands our ultimate allegiance.
And so there we have the somewhat tentatively named theology of hobbies. Hobbies are good things because they're an avenue through which we can have rest and refreshment, which we know we need and which God has instituted. They're a way by which we can satisfy our desire for community. And they're a way through which we can exercise our God-given enthusiasm and passions. However, a word of caution. The most important question of all is, are our hobbies and passions feeding our souls with God-exalting experiences? Do we find our spirits enlivened whenever we carry them out? And this is the most important question because this is the crux of why we started this. What does it mean to bring our passions and our hobbies and our interests under the command of God? If our chief purpose is to glorify God, then we must always be discerning about whether or not we're doing that with our hobbies. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. You don't belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. So honor God with your body. As John Calvin puts it, the the human heart is an idle factory. And hobbies do not make good gods, let me tell you. I know that my love of board games could very easily morph into something that is not God-glorifying. I'm sure all of us can, not to to single out a, a particular example, but I'm sure all of us can probably think of someone for whom the following of a, a particular sports team could border on idolatry. When our hobbies and leisure time replace the worship of our Savior, they have become idols to us. And so as John Piper writes, it doesn't make a difference whether you collect coins or climb mountains. You need to ask, is this the Lord's will for my life that he bought and owns? And to answer that, We need to ask, am I glorifying him in this hobby? Is it serving to make him look glorious? Is it making me look like one who values his glory above all? Don't waste your leisure time. Leverage it to glorify the one who gives you life, breath, and strength to enjoy it. We're going to move on at this point to... Jim's going to come back up and talk about reaching our subcultures. But before we do that just because we've been talking now for nearly half an hour, just take two minutes, or take, take one minute, talk to the person beside you, preferably someone you didn't come with, but if you're only sitting beside that person, that's fine. Talk to the person beside you and just share your name and share something that you have a hobby or an interest or a passion in, just to break this up a bit, and then we'll come back. Okay, thank you. I'll pull you back together now. We will come back to that um, towards the end of the seminar. So do, do remember what you've been talking about there and we can continue those conversations as time goes on. I just want to give a brief introduction then before Jim comes up to talk about re- re- reaching our subcultures. Jim has kind of explained already what we mean by subcultures. They're, they're groups of people uh, gathered around a shared common interest um, that, that unites them, that maybe makes them slightly separate from mainstream culture. Uh, for Jim and I, that's being a part of people who are passionate about board games, about, about fantasy novels, about all those sorts of things. For anyone, it could be about climbing mountains, it could be about going surfing. 
if we remember back to what Jim was saying there about the two of us standing and wondering what it means for us to be disciples of Christ among 40,000 people with whom we have a shared interest. Our hobbies have missional potential because our interests and passions put us in places of connectivity with other people. Moreover, they're places of shared interest. They're places of warmth and familiarity and openness and conversation. They're ideal places to grow relationships with other people and to share our faith. And yet for some reason, our love of board games or our love of knitting or our love of surfing or whatever it is often doesn't always occur to us as valid potential mission opportunities. Jim and I have both worked um, over the course of a number of years in the whole field of student ministry, um, mainly around the Belfast area. And obviously, outreach and mission is a huge consideration for students on university campuses. They're always looking for the silver bullet of evangelism. And an awful lot of what we, what we do if in mission on campus is invitational. Students will put on events and they'll invite their friends to come along. Or they'll look to do some sort of act of service. They'll, they'll, they'll look around to the students around them and say, what, what way can I serve you? And those are good things. Mission weeks, mission nights, invitational events, looking to serve people. These are all really good and really important things. However, equally important is simply carrying the good news of Jesus with us into all the world. If we are Christ's ambassadors, we are carrying the gospel message with us wherever we go. And so what does it mean for us to go and join a fencing club or a debating society and carry the presence of God into those avenues? And so as we consider that, Jim's going to come up and talk to us about the, the biblical basis or a biblical example of how we can carry our interests, the gospel through our interests into those mission fields. Thank you, Phil. Folks, as we start this next week, uh, I'd love us just to read some scripture together. So if you, if you have a Bible with you or if you have a Bible app on your phone, we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible or an app, don't worry, that's fine. I, I'm going to read it anyway, and sometimes it's just a real blessing to hear scripture read. So please feel free just to, to, to listen and enjoy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is what we're going to read together. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Hopefully that's not vastly different to what you have in front of you. Um. As we kind of pick up the passage in First Thessalonians chapter 2, obviously Paul, Paul writing here to the church in Thessalonica, a church that he and other missionaries had planted. And as we pick up chapter 2, he is sort of reminiscing over what, was like, what life was like for, for both him and the other missionaries when they first arrived in Thessalonica, how they started to interact with the people that they met there. So First Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read together verses 1 to 12, um, but we'll focus mainly on 8 to 12 for this next part of our seminar. But let, let's read together first of all. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we've been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So you can see we weren't preaching with deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. 
Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness. We were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we've never sought it from you or from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses and so is God. We were devout and honest and faultless towards all of you believers. And you know that we treat it, each of you, as a father treats his own children. We plead it with you, encouraged you, urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Amen. I think there's a lot in this short passage that actually can can apply to so many different aspects of your lives. And, And I hope that as we talk, you find encouragement here for your work and life, for your community life, for your life amongst your neighborhood, your family. But specifically today, we are thinking about this idea of our interest, the, the stuff that we're interested in, the passion and passionate about, the, the teams that we play sport in, the, the clubs and societies that we gather in, the other people who we share interests with. And if I can sort of summarize and paraphrase verses 8 to 12 of First Thessalonians, we find here Paul sharing sort of three uh, examples of what life was like for them as they settled into the community in Thessalonica. And I'll pop them up on screen here. First of all, they lived and worked amongst the people. You find that in verse 9. They lived and worked amongst the people that they met there in Thessalonica. Secondly, verse 8, they shared their lives with the people that they met there. And finally, and we find this throughout, but particularly in verses 8 and verse 12, they told them about Jesus. They lived and worked amongst the people they met there. They shared their lives with them and they told them about Jesus. And I think we find in these three things a a way of life for us as the sent people of God to carry him and his truth into every single crevice of our lives, but particularly in the context of this morning, into those subcultures that each of us find ourselves in as his disciples. We're going to take them one at a time and and I hope they encourage you as you think about the things that you're interested in and passionate about and carrying God and carrying the good news of the Lord Jesus into those contexts. So first of all, verse 9, Paul says, they lived and worked amongst the people of Thessalonica. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news. So so Paul's speaking here about the, the working life of the missionaries. When he and the other missionaries came to Thessalonica, they got involved in the working life of the area. And his primary point here is so that the missionaries weren't a financial burden to those that they found themselves amongst. But there's another significant point in what he's saying. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Among you. 
the work of the missionaries put them into shared spaces with the people of Thessalonica. They found themselves living their life adjacent to the lives of others. And I think that begs an important question for us as we think about the stuff that we're interested in. What shared spaces do we find ourselves in because of the things that we love and are passionate about? As you think about your interest, whose life do you find yourself adjacent to because you share an interest, because you have a a common love and a common passion? Because when we start to think about about mission to subcultures and and reaching out in this particular way, all of a sudden we realize that it's really good for us as disciples to join gyms and be among people. To play in five-a-side football teams and be among people. To join craft clubs and be among people. To, To go with other surfers to the beach and be among people. This isn't a philosophy that seeks the lost coming to us. This is based on the idea that we're already among the lost. Because we share in these interests and these passions together. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Our hobbies, our interests, our passion, these things that we love, put our lives in direct contact with the lives of others who we already share a common ground with. And that's significant. So the, the, the missionaries Thessalonica find themselves among people. We too, because of our passions and interests, find ourselves among people. Secondly, Paul notes that they shared their lives with the people there. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. I'm not a student of Greek, but every now and again I like to pretend I'm a student of Greek. I'm one of those people who dusts off my um, my concordance and has a wee look at what the original text says and then pretend like I know lots about it. So I'm not. I'm purely purely sharing with you what I find whenever I looked up what other students of Greek have had to say on this. But there's a couple of important words in there. The word that we translate as share, the word that we translate as life. And another way that we might frame or phrase this verse and this, this idea that Paul is sharing is he is essentially saying to the folks in Thessalonica, we loved you so much that we gave you all of ourselves. We loved you so much that we gave you all of ourselves. And this for me is where this starts to come alive because if you've been with us at New Horizon over the last couple of nights, you'll have, you'll have heard Rosaria sharing on these exact same things. We loved you so much that we gave you all of ourselves. The word that we translate as life in that verse, we shared our lives with you, is a word that means heart, soul, mind, lives. It's everything. Nothing was held back from being a part of this community that the missionaries found themselves in. If we were to sort of reframe this in our modern vernacular, they went to Thessalonica and they did life with the people there. That's a challenge and a thought for us as we think about our hobbies, our interests, our passion, the folks that we're amongst. I've been reading a book recently uh, by a guy called Bernard Malmud. It's it's not a Christian book. It's not even a particularly edifying book, to be totally honest with you. Um, It's a book called A New Life, and it's set in 1950s America. follows the story of a chap named Professor Seymour Levin. Uh, And the story of this fictitious professor is he's an East Coast academic in the USA. He's he's in kind of big city life, big city universities. But through a series of bad choices that he makes in his life, everything kind of falls apart on him. And so he ends up moving from the East Coast of America 
to the Pacific Northwest and to a sleepy little town called Eastchester where he takes up a job in a college there. And this all seems to be a bit tangential. Um, but the reason I mention it is because, first of all, uh, the book A New Life follows this fictitious professor, but it's notionally regarded as being semi-autobiographical of Bernard Malmud's own experience. And there was a line in it that struck me in particular. Uh, in this line, we, we find we, we pick up the story of the professor. He's moved to this new town. He's been there for a few months. And he is reflecting on what it's been like to, to try and become a part of this new community that he's found himself in. Again, I'll pop it up on screen, but I'll read it for you as well. Uh, Malmud writes this of, of the fictitious professor. He was disappointed at how lonely he still was after almost three months in Eastchester. Levin wanted friendship and got friendliness. He wanted steak and they offered him spam. He wanted friendship, he got friendliness. He wanted steak and they offered him spam. I think that's such a sad commentary on the life of someone who was just looking for community, looking for belonging. And I think it poses an important challenge for us as we think about uh, engaging with the lives of the people we find ourselves amongst, and particularly in the context of this week and our theme at New Horizon. When we think about those folks who we share our life experiences with through our hobbies and interests, the folks that we play in a sports team with, the folks who we spend time with, uh, uh, enjoying our hobbies and our interests. Do we offer them friendship or do we offer them a passing friendliness? Because there is a real difference. And even picking up on what, what Rosaria has shared over the last couple of nights, I think one of the keys in this is, in some degrees, friendliness is the easy one. Friendship, as Rosaria said, requires sacrifice. It requires time, it requires energy, it requires commitment. Friendship requires sacrifice. And yet I think that the, 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 the imperative of the gospel imperative that we have is clear in this, and the example that we have from even Paul and the early church on this is clear. Malmud says of Levin that he wanted steak and they offered him spam. Forget about steak when it came to the missionaries in Thessalonica. They brought a four-course feast to the people that they met and they shared their lives with in Thessalonica. They gave them all of themselves. Again, remember that different translation of the verse. We give you all of ourselves. Imagine them sharing life with the people that they met there, journeying with the people that they met there, pouring their hearts out to the people that they met there, and in return, having those people pour their hearts back out to them. They shared in all the joys. They shared in all the sorrows. They shared in all the griefs together. I think that's an encouragement to us as we think about carrying Jesus into these spaces of shared interest that that we have in connection with those around us. We're getting alongside people, many of whom might be unbelievers, but we're meeting them in that real need for authentic and sincere relationship, not just friendliness, but actual friendship, showing Jesus' love, sharing his compassion. And that's fantastic. 
I think another thing that's worth noting, just as we as we close out this point, though, is that if we're breaking this down into these three points, live and work amongst people, share your lives with them, tell them about Jesus, this isn't the second checkbox in a step to bringing someone into the kingdom. It's not a sense of, okay, I'm amongst these people now. I've got to make friends with this guy, otherwise he's never going to come to know Jesus. The, 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 the call that we're given is not to see the people that we meet, the people that we find ourselves amongst, as projects. They're not projects. There's a, a wonderful writer I read whenever I was a, a student, a young person, uh, 18, 19 years old, a guy called Donald Drew. He wrote a, 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 a book mentoring a, a young Christian student. And in the book Letters to a Student, he has a lovely way of presenting it. He says the people around us are not to be seen as spiritual butterflies to be caught and pinned. That's not the sense of what we're doing. We want to show love, compassion, friendship. Give all of ourselves to the people around us. Get alongside them. Stay alongside them. Carefully, prayerfully listen. Talk to them with all the respect, with all the affection that we can muster. The missionaries to Thessalonica found themselves among people, but a step further than that, they gave them all of themselves. As we find ourselves among people through our hobbies, our interests, our passions, do we offer a passing friendliness or are we offering all of ourselves, genuine, sincere, authentic friendship, relationship, community to those around us? But thirdly, finally, and maybe most importantly, they told them about Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for he called you to share his kingdom and glory. I love the language that's used there. We pleaded with you. I'm trying to unpack that and think, like, why, why is the passion so strong here? We pleaded with you. And it's because of everything that's gone before. They've connected with folks. They've shared all of themselves with the people they've met. They've made genuine, sincere, loving, caring, important relationships. What now is more important? What is more transformational than to want to see that person come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? That, that, that's the goal, that's the aim here, that's the hope, that's the every single part of it. We plead it with you because they want to see their lives changed. I, I love if you, if you dip back into 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5, uh, Paul says this, never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know, and God is our witness, we weren't pretending to be your friends. They're not just trying to warm people up here. It's not a sense of kind of friendship evangelism. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll warm them up, we'll, we'll treat them well, and then maybe someday they'll come to our church. The precedent here was to sincerely, lovingly care for the people around them. And if that's our heart for the people that we meet and the relationships that we invest in as we find ourselves connected to people through our hobbies and interests, then then what more could we hope for than, than wanting to see them live a full life, a full and abundant life in the Lord Jesus and the promise of an eternity with their heavenly Father? I want to see people transformed by an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. That has to be the hope. That has to be the hope. And I guarantee you, as you draw alongside people, 
as you get to know them, as you invest in those relationships, not just passing friendliness, but actual sincere friendship, I guarantee you the opportunity will arise to bring Jesus into those conversations. Why? Because conversation between friends, real conversation between real authentic friends is never shallow. It's deep, it's sincere, it presses into the big things of life. Think about your best friends, think about your family. That you, you talk about the big things, you grieve together, you mourn together, you experience joy together. And as the people of Jesus, we're the people of God, as, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we meet those people in that, in that emotion. But we also use that as, as an opportunity for proclamation. To speak the truth of the Lord Jesus into their spiritual need. The dialogue that we'll have with the people around us or our friends, those with whom we have formed friendship, will be sincere and honest and relevant and deep. They'll talk about guilt and loneliness and feelings of meaninglessness and worthlessness and inadequacy. They'll chat about questions of morality. They'll discuss their fears and their hopes with you. And in all of those places, there's an opportunity for us to introduce Jesus into those, uh, into those conversations. A uh, really well-known verse in First Peter, and, and you well know it, and, and Gilbert made reference to it this morning. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter writes this, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So when our friends that we play hockey with, enjoy crafts with, fly kites with, make model airplanes with, climb hills with, go walking with, go running with, play board games with. Whenever they sit down with us and they share with us about a situation in their work or their family or their community that from their perspective is completely hopeless. We're ready as the people of God, as followers of the Lord Jesus, with all the love and all the care and all the affection, and all the gentleness, and all the respect in the world to say to them, well, actually, I don't believe in hopeless situations, and I don't believe in hopeless situations because I know Jesus. Incredible example of how these folks carried the truth of the Lord Jesus into, the, if you want to put it this way, the, the, the subculture in Thessalonica. And an incredible way that we can think about how we carry it to into the different groups and connections that we'll make through our hobbies and interests and passions. We find ourselves among people, adjacent to other lives. In those places, we want to offer sincere and genuine, authentic community, relationship, love, real friendship, giving all of ourselves to the people there. But thirdly and most importantly, when we have those relationships, when we see those people in front of us and, and we know how much we love them and care for them, we want to see them transformed by an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see them come to know him as Lord and Savior. So uh, a lovely wee three-step thing that hopefully we, we, we can all carry with us. And I say it's not just about hobbies and interests. Hopefully you can see this too in your working lives and your community lives. But for us today, we want it to think about it in that particular way. Just as we uh, bring our, our seminar to a close, Phil and I were, I suppose, really... Um, 
hopeful that we wouldn't uh, just sort of um, speak lots of stuff out and be encouraged by it this morning, but I'd say that there'd be another step to it as well. And Phil and I have been so massively challenged as we've been preparing, and God has been speaking to us through this as well. Um, so hopefully you'll find on your seats, if you don't have one on your seat, there's, there's a few extra ones, and maybe Dave can help us out and, and pass them around. You'll find a little business card-sized prompt that looks a bit like this. Okay, and it's got the wee title of our seminar in the front of it. If you don't have one, even pop your hand up, no problem. We'll get one ferried over to you now. Is there any folks at the back? Do you have one? Nope, Dave. If we could get a few down there, and I'll I'll keep explaining, folks, just while while Dave's handing them out. So on the front of the wee card, you'll find the title of our seminar for today. On the back, Phil and I have just posed two wee questions, and they're two wee takeaways that that you know every single one of us will all hear today answer and think about in the context of our seminar and the first question says who do my interests be bring me into contact with as you've sit and you've heard this this morning and as you discussed with others about the things that you're passionate about whatever it is that you love to do in your spare time maybe a person has come to mind Maybe you've been thinking about people that you play football with or go running with or go walking with or go to craft club with. Maybe there's a specific person in mind. Maybe there's not. Maybe you're just thinking about those things that you love and how you'd love to meet more people through your hobbies and interests and passions. Whatever is your, your thought on that question, we'd love you to write just, just down below that wee question, either that specific name, that person or people that you're thinking about, that your, your hobbies, interests, passions bring you into contact with, or that group of people or the kinds of people that you come into contact with. Pop their name down or pop that group down. And then we'd encourage you to start to pray over that. Ask God for those gospel opportunities. Pray for them and pop it in your Bible and keep thinking about them. And the next time you see them, ask them how they're doing and and what's going on in their lives. And keep that in mind and continue to pray for that and remind them that you're praying for those things. So start to think about the person. But that's not the end of the card. There's a second question as well and there's a second challenge we want to offer too. Yeah, you'll see the second question says, How will I extend to them the hospitality that the gospel communicates? Now, whatever name you've been thinking of, maybe it's someone that you you just have a a passing knowledge of, someone that you know you're in contact with, or maybe it's someone that you know really well, maybe it's someone that's already a good friend. For whatever the situation is, think and pray about what what way can we extend to them the hospitality that the, the gospel communicates. Maybe it could be as simple as, if it's someone you don't really know so well, something as simple as, as meeting with them for coffee, showing um, an active interest in their life. If it's someone that you know, maybe they've, they've gone through a hard time recently, just ask them, how, you know, how are you doing? Is there anything I can help you with? Is there anything I can pray for you about even? If it's someone who's, who's had a particular joy recently, celebrate with them in that. Maybe someone who's moved house recently, you could think about buying them a housewarming gift. Something to, to extend to them the hospitality of showing that you know them and you care for them and you're wanting to engage. Maybe it's having them around to your house for dinner. Maybe it's, it's offering to pray through some things with them. Regardless of what it is, and it'll be different for each of your situations and each of the people you're thinking about, but do think and pray about it and write it down on the card. How will I extend to this person the hospitality that the gospel communicates? Think about it, pray about it, and continue to, to move forward in it. 
Thanks, Phil. Yeah, uh, when we were chatting about this, I said to Phil, I'm going to do this too. I'm going to challenge myself with this. And I'm, I'm not putting a timeline on it, but I need to be accountable. So whatever I write down in my second week slot, I'm going to try and make sure I make that happen within the next couple of months. If I, if I write down, I'm going to have a coffee with someone. I'm going to hold myself and, and get Phil to hold me accountable to doing that as we seek to engage with the people around us. Folks, our time is gone for the morning. Thank you so much. Um, we'd hope to have a bit of time for questions and answers, but sure, Phil and I are going to be about here anyway. So if you have any questions or, or you'd love to chat further... Um, please come and, and chat with us. We'll be around for a bit. As we, as we close, I'd just love to pray with us, if, if that's okay, folks. And, and even keep those wee cards in your hand just for a minute or two. As I even pray about the different things that we've written down on those wee cards. If you do need to head on, folks, please don't be embarrassed. If you've got kids to collect or anything, scoot on. But let me just end our, our seminar this morning in a word of prayer. Let, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the, the good things that you've given us, the good gifts that you've given us. We thank you for the things that we're, we're passionate about and that we love. And help us to continue to see you in those, God. Help us to continue to check ourselves, Father, that we are, we're making you first and foremost in our lives. That everything we do is for, for your kingdom, for your glory. But we thank you for the blessing of having the opportunity to, to be rested and refreshed, to be enthusiastic about things and to find community in the interest you've given us. God, as we've, as we've chatted together this morning, Father, maybe you've brought uh, people groups or you've brought names specifically into our hearts and minds, and we've written those down on cards this morning. And God, we pray for everything that we've written down. Father, for those who have written down just a, a group or a club or a society or a group of people, we pray, God, into that, and we pray for more specificity, Father. Continue to, to draw people to you and help us to see the people, Father, that you, you're working in their hearts and minds and lives, and help us, Father, to, to extend that gospel hospitality to them. For those of us who have written down specific names, Father, we pray over those names. Lead us, guide us, give us discernment as to how we can, we can share our lives more with them. We can give them more of ourselves. And Father, continue to embolden us with a passion, Father, to see people come to know full and abundant life in the Lord Jesus. That's our prayer this morning, Father. We pray just that you would uh, encourage us in the rest of our day, Father, as we gather back maybe together again tonight, or if we're, we're heading home, continue to be with us and encourage us in our journey. We thank you for bringing us together this morning. We thank you for the blessing it is to be with brothers and sisters. And we pray all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.